need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk. Now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio draped up in the finest Scoot McNary for men, it's Andy Greenwald! You know, I almost didn't come in today because it's a holiday and I've been you know, I've been working remotely recently. Happy and Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Same to you. Of all years, we should take a moment <laughs> and honestly just appreciate the greatness of the man and the beauty of the day. But I actually, you know... When I came in to record with you today, I thought it'll be worth it if we can discuss Scoot's scoop neck <laughs> sweater fashion. Sober Scoop. Sober Scoot really comes through with the Stag Provisions 1990, yeah. like listening to Archers of Loaf's demo. I didn't know that Faraday brand started in the Ozarks. Yeah. We're talking we're talking the fashion angle on TD3 Ep3. Yeah. But we have other things to talk about too today. We're going to talk about Black Monday on Showtime. Yeah, we're gonna talk about we're gonna do we're gonna talk about comedy on TV. Yeah, we are. Um, how was your weekend? We're gonna talk about health. Sure, <laughs> we're always talking about health. Look, this is a self care podcast. It was nice that I mean, first of all, how are you doing? Because you know, I infected everyone here. Man, I'm okay. I'm okay. This it, is a rough season. Yeah, it's, it's it's taken down a lot of the soldiers. It's upper resp season, <laughs> and honestly. Everyone here has been so supportive. You, Kaya, there's no one else here because I, it's a holiday. But whatever virus that lives within me now <laughs> has the tenacity of QB12 in the fourth quarter. That's a great look for you. I, you, were, you were really dialing up some football yesterday. You were dialing up some hot rounds. I did. The in-laws are in town for the long weekend. And the one that, well, look, the best thing about in-laws is childcare. The mm-hmm. second best thing about in-laws is you can't tell your father-in-law that you can't put on the game. Right. Conversely, it's hard to tell your wife you're going to put on the game. But, but she was like, go hang out with my dad, right? Well, it's not like we have multiple rooms. You right. know what I mean? It's not a palatial situation. Everyone is around each other. But when the father-in-law starts drifting towards the stack of remotes that the modern household has, <laughs> and is like, which one makes TV go on? And you're like, I guess I which can show you. Which one brings me Jim Nance? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, can, you can get there and... and uh, so you just sat, did you do six, six hours? How much football no, did you watch No, no, we watched the second half of game one. Okay. Um, the NFC Championship. And then the we, and the we watched the Very controversial first ending. of game. I saw that. Yeah. We watched the first half. I mean, by the way, I mostly checked out from football for a couple of years before the Philadelphia Eagles won the Super Bowl, but you can just punch dudes now, huh? Well, you don't even need to wait for the ball to show up. That was the, it was the thing that's funny about the NFC Championship, and I guess this is on television, so it counts as something that <laughs> yeah, the watch could boy. do. But it's the, weird that we're just like, Everybody is like, that was a travesty of justice. Yeah. But congratulations to the Rams who are going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> America's used to travesties of justice. Yeah, now. I, was, I guess that is true. And then we watched the first half of the second game. Uh-huh. Family went out to dinner. Uh, Where'd our, you go? Our buddy, our buddy Matt, mm-hmm. provided text based play by play for the fourth cue of the next game. Like, literally play by play while we were at dinner. So we made it home just in time for. The wild finish. We saw the last drive of the fourth quarter, and we saw the overtime, and we saw um, evil maintain its throttle hold on our dimension. Yeah. And to bring it back to my lungs, <laughs> no, we don't need to do that. But, but yeah, that was a day. That was a day of sports. But it, it's a long weekend. It's all right. I spent my weekend. I Saturday, your boy prayed to the sun god out in the Moore Park Highlands up in— uh, Did you get out there? I got, I got in the links. Put little golf. Listen, uh, my game's a little rusty. 
I had some nice shots. We so. haven't had a lot of golf talk recently. I thought maybe your really interest was diminishing. It was. It's not really the season. I mean, it's even here. It's it's difficult okay. to get it in because it's you know the sun goes down at four o'clock, and then Saturday night I uh, went to a concert. I went and saw Joyce Manor. Good for you. At the at the Palladium with three thousand of my all ages friends, and <laughs> you haven't been getting into concerts much. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> that's the only <laughs> entertainment choice you can make. Where you're like, okay, what time does it start? And they're like, seven, but really 10.30. It's rough. It's like, that's it, there's no other thing where you're like, hey, man, what time does True Detective come on? Yeah. And they're like, I don't know. It could be any time, really. You should stand while it's almost <laughs> on, though. Yeah. And <laughs> I definitely watched a dude vomit for 45 Oof. seconds. Uh, and there was, you know, a lot of crowd surfing. But Joyce Manor's really, really good bands. I did not. I was like, I was like into them, but now I'm like, that's a fucking great band. Are you into them because they impressed you with the depths of their pop punk catalog? Or are you into them because you feel like it's a just a gesture of reparation since you left 35 minutes into their set to beat traffic? I left 50 <laughs> minutes into their set, and it was going to be a crush for Ubers, and so I just felt like I'd seen like, and they also have. Like, all their songs are, like, a minute and a half long yeah. or two minutes long. So I got, like, a solid 20 songs down. We, um, the wife and I went up to Ojai for uh-huh. a little uh, couples retreat. And uh, that's Nikki Piz country, by the is way. That, uh, I think that's where Pizzolatto is. And I, I think what you're talking about there, it sounds a lot like the lost episode of Camping. We're, uh, I just wanted to say, though, the golf thing, it, it's a lovely, lovely, lovely country up there. But where we were staying, abuts a golf course. Abuts a golf course. Yeah, it's it's in the in the yeah. resort. Yeah, and so our welcome to it when we went like went by the little little snack bar to get a chicken salad sando because your boy forgot to eat anything during the drive up there. You know, the quaintness of it was disrupted by the bro in the MAGA hat just doing donuts in a golf cart. Did he actually have a MAGA? Hat? Yeah, and he was actually doing donuts. Um, That's I, not really golf course behavior. He was driving a golf cart. Okay. Is that a more fair representation <laughs> sure. of things. We haven't really spliced together all the cell phone footage of, the, of our interaction. <laughs> but it, I got to say, like, you got to go go get your golfers, man. Yeah. I was worried about your health out on the links. It's a big tent church. So there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of different parishioners, a lot okay. of different sects. But we welcome all kinds. Um, Greenwald, since you mentioned Ohio and Nikki Piz, let's talk a little bit about True Detective Season 3, Episode 3. So this was interesting to me. Now, this was the first episode. So Jeremy Saulnier film director who directed the first two episodes yes. and was slated to direct at least this one, right? Mm-hmm. There were going to be three more. I've had this opinion through a long time as a TV critic. You know, I understood the opinion, and I, and I, and I still sort of get it, even having gone through the, the pilot process myself. Like, Daniel Sackheim, who directed this episode, mm-hmm. came on as an EP and directed, I think, the uh, last three, three. six, and seven, I believe. Right. Um, is a very talented TV director and a very talented director. And you can tell, though, I think the difference in ambition, there is a painterly aspect to the first two episodes in terms of the shots and the lighting and the the pacing mm-hmm. that I really fell into and I really loved. And this episode, for in ways that are good and bad, fell into a more traditional TV episode of TV drama. Sure, yeah. Now, considering the wild highs and lows of True Detective over the previous seasons, there is something to be said for steadiness. Yeah. But... My concern about this episode concern. Give me a give me a break. <laughs> let me let me back up my golf cart. <laughs> I am not concerned. Take about a moment this. to get on that take. I am not concerned at all. But it did make the rougher edges appear rougher, I would say. The main one being, I still don't quite get this case as the one that is worthy of 
three timelines worth of agita. Sure. That said, the things that I liked about the first two episodes and maybe maybe even shocked our listeners in liking, we're still here. Yeah. And that alone keeps me watching. And that you got you got Dorf throwing ninety nine. Dorf Dorf is you know when when uh, when sluggers. I know you're a big baseball guy. Yeah, sure. When they're in the on deck circle and they got the weights on the back, they got the donut on the on the back, and yeah. then they and then they pop it off and they're in the cage and they're like, this is, feels lighter than air. That's Dorf without the hair. Yes. Yeah. Once you get that <laughs> that recession, <laughs> he's back, baby. He's, he regresses to his current hairline, you and, know, and yet. He also regresses to his Blade Two level of energy. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's interesting, but super fun. And I was glad to see the boys back together, honestly. You're... I, I like their dynamic. I like their energy. And even back to the first season, when I was alone on the hate train, when the boys were just working cases together, that's the part of the show I like best. Mm-hmm. The tension you're getting at is so fascinating, not only for True Detective, but for television in general right now. Because as TV becomes more and more this push and pull between a writer's room and the auteurist directors, even if that's just the way that we read the tea leaves when we're actually watching it, I mean, you can yeah. speak, <clears throat> you can attest as, as, as much as anyone about the just almost breathtaking collaborative effort it takes to make a piece of television yeah. and all the people who are working on different things and how we'll say like, Carrie Fukunaga is a genius and it's maybe it's the director of photography or mm-hmm. it's this person or that person or the set designer or any number of people who could have had a huge amount to do with what we're seeing and hearing. But True Detective itself is such like an interesting case study of that that push and pull, of that of that a writer trying to like be like, these are all the things I care about and that I'm interested in and this is what I want. And then a director saying, well, I'm going to take this material and I'm going to use it as a platform to try all this different stuff. Now, by all accounts, there was a basically, uh, I mean, it was a mutual parting of ways between Saulnier and Fitzalato mm-hmm. in the past. Uh, That's what we've heard. With director tension on this show, I think Fitzalato has like a very clear vision for how and, he wants this stuff to go. And starting next week, he's directing for the first time. Is that he directs right? four and eight. Okay. And Sackheim directs, I think. The middle ones. The other ones. Oh, four. He might direct four, five, and eight. And I think Sackheim does three, he's six, and seven. He's never directed before. Yeah. Uh, I think he directed one episode or two, didn't he? I don't know. But the bigger issue is it is a, like like my old boss, Noah Hawley. I mean, that is the ultimate not reclamation, claiming yeah. of, of, of the full vision of the project. Right. And I think that, you know, the thing about what Saulnier did is not only was it like, oh, cool shot. It was, wow, this guy really understands small, s- small communities. Some of them on like, you know, a lot of them on economic hard times mm-hmm. dealing with crime, dealing with, you know, the, the sort of bonds of society fraying a little bit. The, the things that tie us together. And so he was the absolute right director for this material. Yeah. So it's, it sucks that he didn't get to see the project out, although he wasn't ever going to direct all eight. And increasingly, I think we're just seeing, like, that's a huge ask for someone. It's enormous. Uh, and when they do do it, like, even with Fukunaga on Maniac, there's still a lot of, like, that same tension where it's like, oh, okay, it's like this this guy's vision versus, like, the storytelling that we're sort of used to from TV. Yeah, and I think there's also tension that we're not discussing on the studio side too, which makes it more like a film, mm-hmm. where the studio because there's so many moving pieces, the studio or the network or in tandem feel that that there's always a chance to salvage the piece of the project that they like best or the thing that they thought it was going to be or want it want it to be. And if you hand over a blank check to one director, you're getting that 
director's vision throughout. And yeah. if that doesn't line up with what you want, then there's even more friction down the line. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree with that. I think maybe the things that I thought frayed a little bit in this episode were the marginal stuff. It also could have been the story. We never really can know totally. Mm-hmm. But Trash Man, dude in his, in his uh, what is he? He's like a motorized little. He has like a little dune buggy kind of that he drives, a go-kart that he drives he, around town to pick up scrap. The way that that character was on the margins Brett of the Woodard first two. The character. And maybe the fit people in the background being interviewed and the faces. I, I couldn't even tell you exactly how the difference between they are portrayed, the way they were captured in one and two, and then in three. But it felt flatter. Mm-hmm. The confrontation with him, the sort of anger of the neighbors, it didn't feel as textured as the world we saw around him in the other ones. You know, and then there's just the other stuff that that that, that I'm always going to bump on, like that the women just die and <laughs> get out of the way, or lovingly invite you to take them to a motel to have sex all night and drink, which, cool. Right. But, you know, this isn't that story. Yeah. This isn't the story that is interested in what they're doing. But you're, you're, you're pointing out that you think that the crime itself or that the yes. case itself is, seems a little bit to creak under the weight of, of I don't quite three know timelines yet. and also just like, okay, so like, and then when you pull this it's, it's, layer yeah. back, it's going to be this. Look, I, I'm on the record as not loving the supernatural aspects mm-hmm. of season one that got everyone all fired up, but at least that felt like it was mysterious enough to maybe be worthy of all the attention. This feels like a confusing and upsetting case, but the lingering aspect of it is unclear. Now, that's going to unfold over time, I guess. And, of course, we get moments like like Wayne losing his daughter briefly in Walmart, and we see the personal, you know, all of that business. Um, but And, obviously, in 2015, something's transpired between 1990 and 2015 yes. where he's not literally, like, he's, she's not gone, but he, they're estranged. Something's up. Yeah. Um, but let's go, let's, let's talk about the two things that I think were most interesting about this episode. Sure. You touched on Dorf, so maybe we can end with Dorf. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Always happy to see a 12-sided die on the screen. Uh Uh-huh. Are you questioning whether or not a long-range recon guy could spot 12-sided die in the woods from from 30 yards? Listen, you're the guy in this room that knows about lerping. You are an old, old, old style. I think that if somebody's just doing a casual listen to this pod, you make it sound like I like like to larp and that I (laughs) I like to— No, quite the contrary. No, look, I, honestly, I couldn't care less about that. I love tracking. Mm-hmm. Let's just let's just roll it all roll the tape all the way back. Tracking to me is a completely mystical or mysterious bullshit skill that yeah. is probably quite real. I don't care. It's such a plot device. But though. I don't care. Yeah. It, but it's one of those beautiful ones that I don't care about. Yeah. Give him the skill and let's go. That's wonderful to me and it's fun and it gives us cuz one of the things that we like in this kind of fiction is competence. Like I like that he's really good at this thing. Um, so I'm happy. I mean, he he could find a 20-sided die. It wouldn't phase me at all. What is your feeling about Dungeons & Dragons as a plot signifier? I know you've probably been talking about this with Jason on the Flat Circle yeah, a after lot. show. Yeah, a lot, yeah. Um, you know, there, I, and I also know that one of the threads that interests you the most, and I think would be interesting to me too, is the sort of patina of 80s subculture mm-hmm. and the way that it, Dungeons & Dragons, Black Sabbath stuff, I mean— this is stuff that feels very tame to us now through the prism of history, but at the time felt a little bit strange, a little bit countercultural, a little bit, um, you know, the, more than countercultural, right? A little bit trending uh, occult to the, mm-hmm. towards the occult, which obviously would have been disturbing in a um, quieter time of American life, but particularly in a quieter corner of America, like where the show is set. Yeah, I mean, so— 
are you, so are you asking whether or not I think it's as like is as big of a deal? No, I'm just curious. What what what's your uh, what's the appeal to you, and how do you see it playing in this show? I look at pre-internet culture, especially when you're a kid, like when you're younger, when we were growing up in the '80s, as like a hallway with a series of rooms on each side, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're walking down this hallway, and you would walk into a room. You would you would get directions to that room, maybe from an older kid, or like somebody would tell tell you to check that room out. And you go into a lot of rooms as a, a kid, and some you you may leave and some you may stay in, right? So yeah. I remember, I think we've joked about this before, but I remember like my first night at Temple University, like the guy I, who was my roommate was like, do you want to go see fish with me? And I was like, no, but if I had gone, yeah. like who knows what would have happened to my life? I've got some thoughts. I would, I could have been like a Cape Cod mushroom <laughs> dealer right now, but I didn't. Business would be booming, You know what? Way. And I didn't, and like my life went in a different direction. But throughout your life before the internet, before the internet was like, here are all the rooms, and you can you can have them all open at the same time in a tab bar on your browser by yourself. Uh, also, by you yourself. don't need to commit. Yeah, exactly. In public, and you can have this this platform that lets you listen to all the music, and this platform lets you watch all the movies, and you never have to really interact with anybody or be made fun of yeah. or be encouraged by any of it. You can just be whoever. Back then, it was a little bit more. Uh, mysterious and some of those rooms had these connotations of like don't go in that room like that room's the weird room that room's the heavy metal room that room's the Dungeons and Dragons room and now of course Dungeons and Dragons just seems like any other teen toy culture from that time period but in reality like I think that as people you have like this rise of the evangelical right in the 80s you also have uh, the decline of like the sort of American dream under Reagan and at that time, you're starting to get these crimes that are just like unspeakable tragedies that are affecting teenagers. And people are grasping at straws for explanations for what's wrong. Yeah. And whether it's heavy metal or rap music or Dungeons and Dragons or all these things, I think that my favorite part about True Detective, aside from the sort of general my of the show itself, just like tough talking detectives, is that it makes me think about all this other stuff. Yeah. And that's... That's been a cool thing. I don't think it's actually going to be the make or break part of this season is like these teenagers who listen to Sabbath or like the fact that this kid was playing specifically Dungeons and Dragons. I think it's going to be more who was he playing Dungeons and Dragons with. Right. But, you know, I I think it's it's a cool little thing without making it to like Stranger Things kids running around in Ghostbusters outfits. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the the appealing thing about this sort of story is that the kids are not all right. The kids are not where they're supposed to be. The so, the supposedly straight and narrow, the society the society is represented by the cops. In this case, it's even it's tripling down on it because the cops are um, obviously they're older, but they are also veterans. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are they are the system, you know. And there's that scene in last night's episode where he's at the I don't know if it's a, a VFW hall or a bar. But yeah, it's a VFW bar. Yeah, you know, even. Lieutenant Dorff's stature uh-huh. or, or relevance is question. I mean, these guys are this they are the spine of society, supposedly. Uh-huh. And then what bothers them most, like the trash man, when they return to a world that they, that they no longer fit into, that they are out of step with. And we you know with that, of course, echoes Wayne's own inability to stay focused or to stay locked into one time. It's a rich text mm-hmm. and it's interesting. And I'm curious to see how far this season of this show allows our main character to tumble, basically, as opposed to being this sort of slightly 
this weather vane through the timelines that is only slightly crumpled and bent. Yeah, well, depending on how much it adheres to the first season's structure, which it so far has a lot of similarities, Mm -hmm. at one point, one of these timelines is going to have to become the main timeline. You know what I mean? Like, they're going to— Right. Like, in in the first season— it was interrogations telling the story of something that had happened 15 years before or whatever it was. And then it went into that present tense of when the interrogations were taking place mm-hmm. and they went on to pursue the case itself. So I'm curious to see, is it 90 or 2015? I mean, 2015 is going to have like, you know, Mahershala Ali in 2015 is not moving with the same agility as... He's really good at playing an old guy. I can't believe it. It's an amazing it. He's like more convincing as an old guy than he is as the 1980 guy. And it, you know, there's something... He, he has such a stillness in his physicality always that it's just, you know, maybe it lends itself to that performance. But it's amazing. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's legitimately amazing. Um, and the relationship between him and Ray Fisher, just physically the way they approach each other and gravitate around each other, I am, com- I am totally removed from the reality in which he is not an old man. Yeah, I know. And he is not that guy's father. It's really striking. Um, the last thing I would say for So people, what's weird is, why is it that they can get the the old man version so right, mm-hmm. and the 1980 him and Dorf definitely just, like, can't get, like, is hair that hard? I think hair's hard. I, I think that, well, I think that, that, that they're doing a great job on Mahershala. Like, I think he's, I, I can tell physically which era we're in just if he's alone on the screen. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the hair. I just think that there's something with their, the way they're treating him, the way they're making him up. Slight clothing differences. Slight yeah. clothing differences. But again, I think it's a physical thing, the way he's holding himself. Um, I think Dorf, his face is too weathered and lined to plausibly be the younger version. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he just seems like totally ready to be the middle version. I don't know if we're going to get an older version. <laughs> I was just going to say, for people who are on the fence about the larger supernatural mystery part, which I am on some level. I just really would urge people younger than 30 to go online and Google uh, the Dungeons & Dragons Player's Handbook and Monster Manual Mm -hmm. covers from like the second edition, like the early 80s. Because these are like totemic images. Like I I never actually successfully played Dungeons & Dragons because it sounded amazing. Did you try? Yeah, because... It seemed amazing. Like it was, it seemed totally creative. Like yeah. you would just create a story and you could create characters. And, you know, even wanting to be a writer at a young age, I was like, oh, that would be the greatest thing to do. But then ultimately it was just rolling dice. It was rolling dice and being dependent on someone who was the dungeon master making the story. And I never, never really found the right DM, if you know what I mean. Never really slid into the right <laughs> story DMs. Story of your life. Honestly. But on, what it represents still is what's interesting. And Pizzolatto, for all our obviously obvious differences and stated differences, were more or less the same age, right? He's maybe a couple years older. I think, yeah, hair. Yeah. But these books, like you just would see them in these weird covers, and they felt like portals, as you said, Chris, into other realities. Mm-hmm. And almost that's enough, that mystery of like the sliding doors, like you could chase down that thing, and it makes you feel a certain way because it felt so strange and foreign and other. It was only in the back row of the Walden books or the older or the friend's older brother bookshelf. And that um, the mystery of opportunity of childhood is so fascinating. Yeah. And Sonia did a really good job with that because initially he just presents Will as this like kid who rides his bike and has a Boy Scouts backpack and is taking care of his sister and just seems like Nothing nothing to see here. It's a great point. And they've they've done really nice like layer after layer of well these parents are pretty disengaged with the the process you know somewhat disengaged with the process of raising their kids mm-hmm. they have they have their own problems 
And it's slight, it's just slowly starting to be like, okay, so like, what did they really know about Will and what was Will really doing? And that I think is going to start to explain and, and what really happened out in the woods, which is essentially the question, both in, yes. of like all fairy tales and also this show. But ultimately, I think the thing that remains the most successful to me about this season versus other seasons and versus other uh, shows that might, that Netflix might also suggest to you if like they were prestige all in the same crime shows. algorithm. Yeah. Like I, I was thinking about the killing recently uh-huh. and what the show is not doing that I appreciate is that it is not just throwing red herrings at us like we're at Pike Place Market it is not interested in cycling through suspects mm-hmm. it is really focused on this one man's journey through space and time yeah um, which I think ultimately even though you know I find it weirdly humorless and often claustrophobic that is a successful way to convey the story sure uh, for people who are on the fence or looking forward to next week. Next week is the episode that Milch got a credit on. Is that right? I David Milch, so, yes. the yeah. mastermind of Deadwood and a lot of television greats, who is rumored to be much more involved in the season. And then yeah, that was, was like, then down. They were going to co-write it was like <clears throat> one of the rumors. Right. And then Pizzolatto said that they basically traded like notes. Like Milch came, right. did a, did some work for a week or two on this season and, and that Pizzolatto did some work on the Deadwood movie, I guess. Oh, weird. That's what he says, yeah. Let's take a break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Black Monday, You're the Worst, and a couple other TV comedies. Today's episode of The Watch is sponsored by ADT Real Protection. When it comes to something as important as your family's safety, you deserve real protection from ADT. Real protection means the nation's number one smart home security provider is standing by and there for you when you need them. Real protection means having a safe and smart home with everything from video doorbells, surveillance cameras, smart locks, lights, carbon monoxide, and smoke detectors, and a system that's custom designed to fit your lifestyle. And setting up custom automations to do things like lock the doors and set the thermostat when you leave. Real protection means staying safe on the go, in the car, or when your kids are at school, With the ADT Go app and SOS button, Real Protection means 18,000 employees safeguarding you. Real Protection means direct connections with first responders. No matter how you define safety for you, your family, or your business, ADT is there. ADT Real Protection. Visit ADT.com slash podcast to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Showtime and the acclaimed comedy series Smilf. Bridget Bird is a 20-something single mom from South Boston doing her best to juggle life, work, and relationships, all while staying true to herself and creating a better life for her son, Larry, starring Frankie Shaw, Rosie O'Donnell, and Connie Britton. Don't miss the return of Smilf. New episodes every Sunday, only on Showtime. Greenwell, we're going to talk about Black Monday. I just had one quick thing. Since we were talking about Nick Pizzolatto maybe being involved, maybe being involved in Deadwood, and these are the sort of extant HBO projects, a weird one that's sort of gone under the radar uh, had some news last week. There's this long gestating Perry Mason reboot, mm-hmm. which this seems like post-peak TV at its peak in that this was a project that landed at HBO with a big, splashy announcement and probably a big uh, cash penalty with Robert Downey Jr., uh, his wife, their production company, having the rights to the beloved television lawyer Perry Mason. They were going to reimagine it. Downey was going to star in the show, which, of course, was very big and splashy. This probably broke around the time The First Shoe Detective was happening. Or at least, you know, I, I feel in my I, mind it's a connected idea because— I believe it might have been around when I talked to Downey, which would have been for 
either Civil War or Iron Man 3. Yeah. So it's been around for a while. Yeah. Clearly, he's been so too busy like 20, to do this. 14, 15, But there was yeah. a moment when Pizzolatto was going to be writing this show. Yes. And now it's fallen to Roland Jones, who was a writer from the Kate, Jason Kadams verse, who wrote one of the very best episodes ever of Friday Night Lights, The Sun, um, which is in itself exciting. And then they announced last week that Matthew Reese, fresh off The Americans, one of the best actors working on TV, is going to take the lead, which obviously I'm very excited about and interested in. But they also announced that it's kind of a gritty reboot. Yeah. Right? Like, it's set in 1932 Los Angeles. It's like, it's, it's a, film noir. It's like it, Raymond Chandler era. Yeah. Which, I, you know, I'm just putting it out there because we're going to be tracking the story with, you know, one-eighth of the rabidity that we bring to our coverage of The Mandalorian. <laughs> <laughs> but this is one of those, like, wild-eyed shrug emoji projects to me that I'm just, I'm, it could be great. Mm-hmm. You know, it ticks a lot of boxes that we like, but it does seem to be, um, from the outside perspective, the kind of thing that gets greenlit and gets made off of very exciting star-studded press releases that continues to exist because of the momentum of those initial press releases. But furthermore, continues to exist because of the AT&T HBO stuff where they need to be making more volume, producing more content. Sure. More volume. Yeah. It doesn't feel like an HBO project, really, as we used to conceive of them, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But I just wanted to flag that as as news develops about it. It's I kind of interesting. Two things about this. All right. One, and we could just leave this as it is, mm-hmm. but would you say that Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. has spent his show business capital well or not well? I think he's a very unique case because he found mega superstardom in his 40s after a— very, very, very checkered path of being, as a very young actor, tabbed as the best actor of his generation, Mm -hmm. as a firecracker of talent and ambition and also uh, substance abuse. And what the case you could make is, for where he is in his life, um, sober, uh, by all accounts quite happy, happily married, with outlandish success, not just financial and global box office, but, you know, his his involvement in the Marvel stuff, I mean, he just has to go in front of a green screen if yes. he wants to, and he can do whatever he wants, and the money he makes off these movies. Um, it weirdly feels like a smart choice for him, because the wild stuff, you know, whether it was like Two Girls and a Guy or Chaplin or these bigger swings that he took, he took the big swings, right, when he was younger, you and I would love to see him at least just do a Zodiac again, which is one of his greatest ever performances. Right. But in terms of the life that seems to work for him as a person and a performer, just having these, like, soft, scheduled franchise landing spots. I don't know. It's weird to talk about his career purely in, like, psychological, personal terms for someone that I have never met. You bonded with him, I believe, over what band? Steely Dan. Steely Dan played his 50th <laughs> birthday, an hanger or something. Yeah, at an airplane hangar. By the way, that's, I believe, your goal for your 50th as well. Um, <laughs> which is, you know, not soon, but there's time. Anyway. Uh, Except I'm going to have Joyce Manor play, yeah. <laughs> not after they heard when you left. <laughs> um, does that make sense? Yes. I, the reason I was asking is because of that chat that I had with him f- a few years ago. and which, I re- which you can read on Grandland, right? Yeah, and I remember the Perry Mason thing was in the air then, as was he had been developing a— Scripted Steve McQueen, speaking of True Detective Season 3, 
the actor Steve McQueen had been working on when oh, he yeah. died called Yucatan, which was about so a treasure cool. hunter in Mexico We've who found like third, you know, like basically a psychedelic other portal of dimension, other portal of reality, like a real like kind of Raiders of the Lost Ark meets the you know uh, Terry Southern kind of acid acid sixties, and that I don't know what's up with that. The Pirates of the Caribbean writer, Terry Rossio, Rossio yeah, was going right, to write right. it or whatever. But there's no news about it in five years now, four years. And to me, the crucial turning point, and, and you know, th- there's debate about how close he was or wasn't to do this, but is the fact that he doesn't do Inherent Vice in 2014, which he was oh, that's right. originally supposed to play Doc Sportello. Instead, Joaquin Phoenix did. He does The Judge, <laughs> which seems like a movie from a completely other decade where it's like back when... You know, you were making a few good men and the civil action and these kinds of movies and you know these kinds of like good lawyer comes to t- like a well the soloist was another one like that. the soloist that but that was a little bit earlier and then uh, since the judge he's just done Avengers Age of Ultron um, Captain America Civil War Spider Man Homecoming Avengers Infinity War Avengers Endgame Sherlock Holmes three is coming out you know, Doctor Doolittle and he's got the Voyage of Doctor Doolittle next year. Uh, a movie he that is I, I don't know if he is actually starring in this movie, but it's directed by Jamie Foxx and it's called All Star Weekend and it's about two guys who form a rivalry over their favorite NBA player, and then uh, a Richard Linklater movie that he is supposed to do called Untitled John Brinkley biopic. I don't know, like he's a really, really, really interesting actor, but this whole. Perry Mason thing to me is an it's like another one of those, huh? I wonder it's, what would have happened if if he actually had done this, you know, if he had I, gone after I, this. I don't want to again. I don't want to presume psychology, and I don't want to equate risky behavior in your personal life with risky behavior professionally. But a career is a crapshoot for an actor, you know, and you can only you can go with your gut, but you have this team of people who are giving you advice on what to do, and there's financial considerations, and there's your schedule, and every decision, especially at that level, has a hundred other attendant, you know, consequences to it. Yeah. And we do see this a lot. And it's e- I just think it's easy for us from behind our mics to be like, take the risky choice, work with a great filmmaker. I think that you can see in the longer-lasting, more interesting careers of people, like our beloved Colin Farrell, for example— mm-hmm. That you're, it's never a mistake to work with the talented, risk-taking filmmaker. It really isn't because the downside is, you know, the movie isn't a hit, but it's not on you. You worked with, you, you pushed yourself. You yeah, know? I mean, I'm it, not it's, trying it's to be a like, longer, oh, you should have been the fucking bellboy in no, but Grand it, Budapest they're, Hotel they're, or something, Robert Downey Jr. No, but you know, we were ha- we weren't having this debate because we were just graduated from college. But 20 years ago, um, when Steven Soderbergh was making Traffic. Uh, Harrison Ford was supposed to play the yeah the, the Michael Douglas the film. Michael Douglas part, and then there was I remember even then in the nascent internet movie blogosphere there was all this like oh Harrison Ford just wants paychecks right he wants to be a movie star still he he can't see himself as this troubled part but Michael Douglas was like gimme yeah yeah and Douglas's career and I listened to him on Mark Maron recently weirdly for a guy who was a big movie star has been that taking the parts that the other people wouldn't Basic take instinct yeah over and over again yeah. Which is pretty cool to be that kind of like, and even doing behind the candelabra, huge years stuff. later. Yeah, exactly, yeah, absolutely. This is the sort of stuff. I mean, this is this is the stuff that's fun, you know, on the sidelines to to, to watch. We, we won't ever really know. But it, in the case of Downey, it does rankle a little bit because we, you know, he's so good. Yeah, he's he is so good. So um, I wanted I, the other thing that I thought of when I was reading about Perry Mason, and this leads into Black Monday. 
I love that you're doing this. Is no one is better in the Segway game. I mean, I've had a lot of reps. <laughs> I've been standing out there on the on deck. Not since Joe Bluth have Segways been. Do you think, as somebody who's probably way more aware of how what what, what things are in development, what things are getting pitched right now? Mm-hmm. How high up in the pitch is the period setting? It's interesting to see it come back around because. You know, when I when I first started taking creative meetings at the end of Grantland, period, you know, period pieces were way, 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 way out. Mm-hmm. The expense was so great, and the risk on the return was also great that people were definitely, definitely cautioning against them. Mm-hmm. I don't know if things have changed. They seem to have. Right. Certainly within... I mean, I, 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 with between this and Glow, between Black Monday and Glow, the fact that we now have like two drug packing domestic robot gags mm-hmm. that are just fully going, and there was the male robot on the Americans. It's interesting. The period setting as romantic seemed to fade out, maybe generationally. Magic City maybe was the last one. Yeah, like the Mad generation. Men level, le- level, like like let's go to the fifties and to play. Like, what was the mile? No, what was the Playboy Club or? Yeah, all that stuff. Pan, Pan Am, Am and the yeah, Playboy yeah. Club, but yeah. I think that was nostalgia for the generation just before ours mm-hmm. in terms of what they didn't quite experience. Now, eighties and nineties nostalgia rules because I think it's just there's always uh, a nimbus around the current generation that is most desirable of like eighteen to twenty nine year olds or whatever of what they maybe have whispers of in their mind but sure. didn't have. And so you just get, you get that ease of distance, but also the ease of reference humor. Is that sort of possibly it? But but I feel like you're chasing something else too in terms of thematical, of, uh, in terms of the themes of some of these shows. Well, it's, it's, I find it fascinating that CBS could just make, well, CBS would never, like CBS and Showtime share a lot of obviously corporate structure. But now, now our former friend of the pod, David Nevins, former head of Showtime, has now been promoted to be head of both. There is a world in which nothing as like, uh, no, no, nothing as uh, profane and sort of boundary pushing as, as Black Monday could be on CBS. No. But a show about an upstart, uh, like ra- corporate rating chop shop on Wall Street, there's a world in which there could be like a procedural about this ragtag group of got well, people who are coming together. The main character would be named Jason Black. <laughs> and well, we can pitch this later in our own time. But you, know, you see what I'm saying? So like the, the 80s part of Black Monday, mm-hmm. especially since it is obviously not historically accurate, no. it almost feels secondary to me, but it felt like in the pitch to get it made was crucial. Yes. And I'm interested in how that shakes out. So... If people haven't yet, I recommend reading Alison Herman's take on the show in The Ringer because I thought she really very cleanly dialed into the thing about the show that might be confusing, mm-hmm. quite honestly, to some people. And I noticed after reading her piece, I, it brought it into clarity for me as well that that was what I was bumping on. This is fully a comedy. And we are kind of out of practice with prestige comedies, yes. particularly on these networks. We have everything is hyper-serialized now. Um, everything is sort of... Hmm. Comedy, yeah, to a degree. Uh, whether it's Smilf that returned last night, and I'm sure we'll talk about that again, or you know, even Glow, to the degree that it is, um, it's often a drama as well as a comedy in a different way. Yeah. So, backing it all the way up, this is a show created by Jordan Kahan and David Caspi, who created one of our favorite 
late lamented comedies, happy endings. And I would say that happy endings is the skeleton key to understanding Black Monday. Well, let's circle back to that. Just yeah. to, so this is a show set one year before the stock market crash in 1987. It begins one year before uh, in 1987. Produced and directed by Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, starring uh, Don Cheadle, Andrew Rannells, um, Regina King, and uh, Casey Wilson, David and Paul Shear. wife, and yeah. Paul Shear, friend of the pod. Yeah. I don't know why I'm really ne- leaning into that today. I just feel loving towards our fellow, our community, our our, our wider audience. Um, it's fucking broad in a way that honestly I, I wasn't expecting because I am so used to a different kind of storytelling. And I found it jarring at first because I found it really funny. Yo, it was really funny. It's funny. <laughs> but it... I didn't even know what I was watching for a minute. And, you know, maybe this is also the curse of pilots. You know, like, we, you got to buy in fully to the rhythm, and they got to set up some stuff and get them in the same office and yada, yada, yada. But, well, let's talk about two things. I'd like Let's talk about it as a comedy, and I'm curious about your happy endings take, and then I just want to clear the lane a little bit to talk about Cheadle. So I just think that it, it's much easier to see, to view this. You're inevitably going to think, okay, so... Billions, succession, margin call, big short. Like, how is this going to either lampoon or explain the world of high finance? But it's just way easier to look at it in terms of the high-density, high-velocity joke-making that made Happy Endings not only, like, an incredible watch, but an incredible rewatch, because you can go back to Happy Endings episodes and just find four jokes in the on the margins of scenes that you didn't notice it, before. God, it was so fast. It was so fast. And the actors, crucially on Happy Endings, that's like a once in a, I don't know, like, I don't want to be crazy and be like once in a trip, but that's like one, a one in 200 sitcoms ensemble mm-hmm. that clicks the way that that group clicked. And I, I think that Black Monday kind of has that in, in in some ways. But Randall's and Cheadle and Regina are like she's so good, really, really, really playing at like a high frequency, man. And as soon as you're just like, oh, this has nothing to do with Wall Street, mm-hmm. like in terms of like it's not going to explain anything to me about Wall Street or make me feel differently about capitalism. And as soon as you're just like, this is just about like people doing coke and smoking while they do Jane Fonda exercises and like. People like sneezing into Andrew Randall's mouth. That that was the hardest I laughed at the whole show. <laughs> it's really, really, really funny in a way that was like it kind of took me back to eighties comedies, where it's yeah. just like joke, 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 and it kind of has a story and it kind of has a mystery and it sort of has like heartfelt moments. It, but for the most part, it's like a lot of fucking really funny bits. Well, Rogan and Goldberg, as filmmakers, are kind of in the splatter art aesthetic, like. You could tell the same guys directed Preacher as directed this. Um, and I, res- I really respect that they have a style that, uh, uh, that interests them, you know. The I ca- think they the make cam- stuff that they want to see. Yeah, the camera has the energy um, of a teenager and follows every joke and follows every bit, almost to the point of abstraction sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I was curious about, though, was like, I felt weirdly unprepared to appreciate the show. I'm, I'm excited to keep going. Now, because, again, for all the reasons you said— but we are maybe over serialized and i and i i wonder why that is like i have been really enjoying catching up on comedies recently and this is just a slight detour to say that like the Not last all. two episodes of good place and honestly the last three or four going back to last year we touched on it at the end of the year i thought it'd been excellent i think the show is all the way back and the thrilling thing about that show is that it 
it is finding out in real time the limits of being a serialized, metaphysical, thought-provoking show and being a workplace comedy. And I think you and I both were chafing a little bit as it got that ratio a little bit off in the mm-hmm. beginning of the season, but now it's all the way back. And it is one of the most risk-taking, thought-provoking shows on television. But it's a comedy. Similarly, You're the Worst, a show that we've both loved in the past, is back on FXX for its last season. Mm-hmm. Um, I was revisiting the end of season four, something we never talked about. And there's a standalone episode about Gretchen Iacash's character um, called Not a Great Bet or something that is one of the best standalone episodes of the last few years. And thinking, you know, these are comedies and you can pop a couple like chips, but it's so serialized and it's emotional that it gives you the same feeling that we are we have been enjoying and have made this podcast about, but in bite-sized, more occasionally lighthearted form. Mm-hmm. So to just suddenly almost, you know, pull the emergency brake and Tokyo Drift into something that is just gonzo. I haven't been watching TV like that in a while. And I wonder if other people who listen to this podcast have been with their active brains. And what I mean is, it seems like people are consuming new TV in serialized um, chunks. Mm -hmm. And then in the margins, they're just watching The Office. Yeah. Yeah. And And yeah, that seems to be the difference. So can Black Monday succeed in a in an atmosphere where people are expecting a certain kind of serialization. And look, they seem aware of it. The show begins with a flash forward, and we're wondering who died, but do we care? I don't know, but it's trying to straddle both worlds a little bit. But mostly it seems like it just wants to just party. Well, that's the thing, is that people often talk about, like, Trojan horsing stuff, like, you know, you're going to use this genre convention to uh, Trojan horse in, like, all the things you want to say about America now, Mm -hmm. right? They seem to be using the 1980s Wall Street thing as a Trojan horse just to fucking make jokes for 35 minutes at relentless pace, at a relentless pace. And that is almost kind of like how they used to make comedies in the 80s where it would be like Stripes. And it's like, it's it's about the army, but it's really fucking Bill Murray and Harold Ramis and John Candy for— two hours just being all-stars. Yep. And that's kind of like how I feel about this. Like when I, I was watching in like the uh, the, junk, the the message is playing in the beginning of the first episode, I'm like, yeah. wasn't that like the song like six years old by the time this started? Oh, the timeline is, it's, it's, it's like just, the Goldbergs and it's fealty to so actual For history. a second, I was just kind of like, well, that's that's not 1986, sir. And that, cause that's because I've been watching True Detective and I've been like, is that 1980s? So that would be this. And then like Reagan would have mm-hmm. just been elected. It doesn't fucking matter. Like, you know, it's just like Kadeem Hardison, Kadeem Hardison. and Regina Hall and 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 uh Don Cheadle just like karate chopping one one another. It's just it's just really like high level comedy acting. And it's actually like a performance but, from Cheadle that I did not expect to be so yeah, live wire. Let, let's come back to that. By the way, I want to apologize. I said Regina King. I knew I was going to do that. There are two goddesses at work <laughs> on the small screen and the big screen named Regina. And they have one-syllable last names, and I apologize. Uh, Regina Hall is the star of the show, and God, she's really good. But I love seeing Party Cheadle back. Cheadle— Boogie people, Nights Cheadle. Boogie Nights Cheadle. Yeah. Devil in a Blue Dress Cheadle. Young Cheadle, <laughs> dare I say. The joke that he's 39 in the beginning plays great. Yeah. Um, it's hard to remember— we talked about Downey a little bit. There are There is a whole type of actor, and actress as well, I believe. And if I had the brain power, maybe we could, we could come up with a couple, who start out as character actors mm-hmm. and live wires, the ones who elevate 
and the mar- on the margins and spice things up. And then they sort of age into or are cast into leading roles where they have to sort of straighten up. And this is much more fun than seeing him put on the armor in the Avengers movies yeah. or put on the armor in House of Lies, which was kind of a tweener. And maybe Showtime's investment in this, this just doesn't feel like a Showtime show, which is cool because maybe the brand that we've been discussing with Showtime for a while has been, we're not really sure what a Showtime show is anymore. Source, but I mean, Allison sort of points this out in her piece, but it's like, is Smilf kidding in this more of like a new version of Showtime? It seems and the same way Escape at Danamora might be a new version of drama for them. They might just be like, we're in business and Showtime shows are maybe high level A or once A-list talent and given a lot of free reign to do what they want to do. Weirdly, Showtime, I never would have said this even a year ago when we, we had a similar conversation when Twin Peaks The Return was on about what Showtime was doing and what, 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 it was, what gaps it was taking advantage of in the marketplace or trying to position itself as. Its, it's aesthetic seems to be 2013 Netflix. Netflix now is not 2013 Netflix. Mm-hmm. Netflix cancels shows. Netflix does mostly, you know, it's really promoting its reality division, its film division, its uh, multicam comedy stuff. It's trying to grab all the corners and please everyone. Its old model of, like, let's just throw money at interesting auteurs like Genji Cohen or um, reboots, like, in this case, it would have been Twin Peaks, or, I mean, this feels more, in some ways, this reminds me of, like, not just because of Ken Marino, but, like, Wet Hot American Summer, you know? Mm-hmm. But similarly, like, Frankie, giving Frankie Shaw a show or Michelle Gondry, Jim Carrey, that, those, don't, those feel like Netflixy moves to me. And mm-hmm. I'm sure they were in the mix on a lot of these things. It's an interesting gambit, um, particularly for a network that has survived by being the CBS of cable in that, you know, you, you watch the season one and you're like, great, nine more seasons, let's go. Yeah. Ray Donovan can run forever. Homeland is ending, but ran for a really long time. I was thinking about the Netflix thing just this week because my wife and I have been watching uh, Friends from College. That's back, right? That was an under-promoted second season. They obviously have a very good publicity department in Netflix, but, like, I just think that they just don't care. Like, they feel like the people who want to watch the show will find the show through, like, whether it's an alert that they're a show that they have liked has returned. Does Netflix do push notifications? I actually don't uh, I know I think that. you can get them. I think that you also can just sign, like, hit when you, you're watching Friends from College. Like, you can just be like, it'll just show up on your home screen when you go to— Because to, it knows you watched it. I mean, that's what ha- literally happened to me yeah. and my wife. We were like, oh, Friends from College is back. Like, we let's watch a couple episodes. And I was thinking about this in relationship to HBO. So HBO's, you know, year or whatever, we don't know when things are coming. I mean, Thrones is obviously coming in April 14th, and then there will be Big Little Lies, and— one would presume Succession is going to come back at, at certain point this year, given the fact that they were working on it uh, mm-hmm. when we talked to to Jesse Armstrong. And then beyond that, there's like Barry and a couple of things. But those are like, you know, half a dozen to ten shows, probably like more like half a dozen shows. Like in the next three weeks on Netflix, not that these are mm-hmm. – I'm not making a, a aesthetic or qualitative comparison, but there's Friends from College, then there's – Black Earth Rising, which is the new Hugo Blick show, which comes out this coming Friday. That's the guy who did an honorable woman. And, we love his work. And Russian Doll, the Leslie Headland show with Natasha Leone. Exciting. That Amy Poehler worked on as a producer. So it's like, those are three shows in two weeks. That are m- more pitched to our aesthetic and more like what we thought of the Netflix would be giving yes. us. Yes, yes. And so I, I think that their volume play is fascinating, but it kind of has broken the ability to talk about it in any kind of reasonable way. Things are 
much less stable than I think the consumer would believe right now. Mm -hmm. Things are nuts. And the baseline story on the consumer level is, wow, there are a lot of choices. Wow, Netflix keeps pumping stuff at us. The story on the podcast or blogger level is, boy, Disney Plus is coming, you know, and mm-hmm. there's all the, and, the and, and a lot of moves are being made because of that. The next level of, like, industry story, and this is one that, you know, I can only speak of, I can speak of, but with a caveat, because I'm in business with them for Briar Patch, is that, this wasn't a secret, but, like, Comcast Universal just announced, well, they're going to be launching a streaming service as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that underscores why the Fox Disney sale murder, was yeah. such a huge thing and why NBC Universal made a last-minute play when it looked like the government wasn't yeah. going to let Disney buy Fox. It's an attempt to just own as much content as humanly possible, but it also means that all three of those major entities are going to start yanking all their shit from everywhere else. Yeah. So Netflix's volume is really a bulwark against what's coming, um, and then how that shakes out, I don't know, but it is weirdly... For a business that we just talk about because we're there's just so much to talk about. There's so much content being made. It there, there's an instability at the root of it mm-hmm. over that's going to play out over the next two to three years as things massively realign and shake out, both in terms of where the content goes and also what the consumers decide is worth their monthly money. Absolutely. I mean, this is what we're always interested in. And at the tail or the head, depending where we are on the nose to tail cookery version of this media story, is Don Cheadle with an afro hoovering lines of cocaine. And kung you know. fu kicking open twin Ken Marino doors and calling them brother fuckers. Yeah. <laughs> and what that means, yeah. it would take a industry seer much wiser than us. The one thing I will say is that you can, maybe you could tell by listening or maybe not, but I can tell that we are still, as people, just better suited to talking about stuff as it comes out week to week. It's just yeah. like like already this year we've talked about True Detective and I don't know if they'd put up eight episodes or ten episodes of Black Monday on Friday and it had been like people were like Black Monday had a, an unsatisfactory conclusion or tails off mm-hmm. in the second half of the season and like there was a, it was kind of a closed book and I was like well I watched three and you're like well I watched one mm-hmm. and neither of us finished it would have been like well where do we start and where do we finish and mm-hmm. we've tried this before where we talk about Netflix shows and like sections of one through three and three through you know, four and we through. still might do that with Black Earth Rising I'm interested in sex education I mean in Russian Doll I've seen it it is fantastic great yeah but I do feel like for the purposes of like a lot of people, it mm-hmm. still really works to watch things once a week. Yeah. Yeah. Well, particularly for the people who care about the second story. Mm-hmm. And maybe we could, we can wrap up on that. But I think that when we started seven years ago this month, mm-hmm. the second story, the industry mergers and the content wars. And how we are talking fe- about this stuff. Yeah. Felt a little bit, honestly, a little bit self-indulgent because we felt we were talking to TV watchers, which was week-to-week watchers. Increasingly, I think people who really watch TV and pay attention and read the blogs and read whatever and listen to us are interested in the whole story. Yeah. Whereas the people who are like, I'm going to sprinkle some friends with College S2 in with my office rewatch. Yeah. And all the stories about Universal Streaming Service and Black Monday premiering doesn't matter at all. Yeah. And, you know, not to diminish the size and reach of our Baranski hive, but... I think that casual audience is the much larger audience. I mean, that show You, which I've not checked out, mm-hmm. but was a lifetime show that got a tiny bit of buzz for being interesting, and then it goes to Netflix almost immediately. And 
Netflix, starting to get super chatty with their ratings, by the way, <laughs> say that it has like a 400% increase. And, you know, I was talking to someone the other day. In concert who, also with them raising their prices, yes, too. Yeah. For shareholder stuff, because they're also, well, let's come back to that. But, like, I, I was talking to a TV writer who knows the business, who yeah. referred to it as a Netflix show. Yeah. Because that's what it's become. There are people Let, who think of uh, Riverdale Mm-hmm. as a Netflix show yes. because it's gotten such a huge following of people who the, wait for it to just go on Netflix. The Good Place should probably be called a Netflix show. There are despite, people who think of Saul as a Netflix but, show. But they probably should. Like, The Good Place should be called a Netflix show despite it being, you know, the the last remaining, well, maybe Superstore people like a lot too, but it's carrying the flag for this this aging, if not almost on its deathbed tradition of NBC uh gather everyone together comedies. Mm-hmm. But it only exists because of this day-and-date international deal it has with Netflix. The last thing I'll say is this, that to your point about the chatty press releases, this is what got HBO into trouble. HBO, for years, never had to talk about ratings, and then the Sopranos ratings were so good it started talking, and now it had to play the game. Mm-hmm. Netflix has been totally opaque forever, which was a huge power move, but now they're talking, and they're talking about Bird Box ratings, and they're talking about you, you know, 400% ratings increase or whatever, and that is, I think, partly to flex and also to signal to shareholders that they're not just funny money as these big storm clouds are looming. Yeah. Let's see if they have their own Black Monday. Well, Penn Badgley is winning, right? That's the only real takeaway. That's that's the takeaway from this entire podcast. If you just skip to the end, which I, you know, (laughs) I assume most members of my family do. Penn Badgley has the belt. (laughs) Penn Badgley has the belt. Uh, We'll be back in some capacity on Thursday. You never know. Some health capacity. Yeah. Until then, thanks for listening, Brains. Great job, Brains. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by ADT. Real protection. When it comes to something as important as your family's safety... You deserve real protection from ADT. Real protection means the nation's number one smart home security provider is there for you when you need them. Real protection means 18,000 employees safeguarding you. No matter how you define safety, ADT is there. ADT Real Protection. Visit ADT.com slash podcast to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Smell for turning to Showtime with all new episodes starting January 20th. Bridget Bird is redefining what it means to be young, single, and a mom. Raw, honest, and relatable. Smilf stars Frankie Shaw, Rosie O'Donnell, and Connie Britton only on Showtime. <laughs> 